certainly glad to have you back. Our text tonight is Matthew 11, verse 29. Anybody want to read that? All right, thank you, Dan. The word is learn. I know you, you misread that, but learn of me. Now, first of all, who's saying this? Jesus, okay? Now, again, this is a command. Uh, we spent several weeks looking at verse 28, where Jesus had come unto me, all that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the same one who gave the command in verse 29 gave the invitation in verse 28. And without a doubt, uh, verse 28 is a wonderful gracious call to anyone who is looking for peace of heart, anyone who has been carrying around a load of guilt, and Jesus will come to him. He would give us rest. Now, again, we, need, we talked about that several weeks ago, uh, but let me remind you of the importance of this verse because my question is, where else can we find the rest that Jesus offers? Nowhere else. If we want that rest, we have to come to Him. So the invitation for those who are longing for that rest uh, and yet don't know how to get it, uh, nor where it's found, and Jesus, if you just, you just come to me and I will give you rest. Now, by the way, I realize that uh, the original audience were Jewish and many of them had spent a lifetime under the burden of the law trying to earn their salvation, whatever it might be. And the problem was they couldn't. And Jesus said he was the one who could give rest. But that call goes even for us today. We can find rest for our souls. But beginning in verse 29, Jesus begins to give us, and those in that day and time, the terms uh, if we're going to have that kind of rest. He gives the conditions we must meet. Dan, would you mind reading verse 29 one one more time for us, please? Thank you, Dan. Now, we looked at this last week, and we found out that one of the things required, if we're going to have the rest that Jesus promises us, we have to be willing to take his yoke upon us. Now, again, we, we took quite a bit of time uh, looking at what a yoke was, but the bottom line is this. A yoke has always been, in the Scripture, a figure of subjection, subjecting ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the problem was, wasn't God. God created man perfect, but what did man do? Sin, and it all fell apart. And since the garden, we were kind of wandering away around uh, aimlessly, uh, kind of blown by the winds and the waves of time. And the, the bottom line is this, we were, we were unstable, our hearts were wild, and we needed some type of stability in our life. So the yoke does signify subjection, but it also signifies complete dependence. It also signifies unqualified obedience. And again, unreserved submission to him. Okay, let's think about this. Okay, the invitation is, come unto me and I'll give you rest. But then he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, understand this. That yoke is not burdensome, 
But we have to be willing to completely depend on Christ. And we have to be willing to be completely submissive to Him. And if we are not willing to do that, we will not find the rest that Jesus promised in verse 28. Now, also understand, as believers, wouldn't you agree we owe this to Jesus Christ? I mean, what has He done for us? Everything. He has done everything. He is our rightful Lord, and He is also our gracious Redeemer. So we owe Him this. So when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, He's speaking about the fact that we have to surrender ourselves to His Lordship. We've got to submit uh, our will uh, to Him uh, and allow His will to become our will. So my question would be this. What In what part of our life does Jesus require submission and obedience? Say it again. The whole thing. Every area of our life. Inwardly as well as outwardly. And we can never be completely open to Christ if we are not made willing and we consider what Christ can do for us to not just receive him, but also his cross of his sufferings and his yoke of obedience. Matthew sixteen twenty four. There again, a requirement to find rest in Christ. And then in verse 29 of Matthew again, take my book upon you, learn of me. Now, if we lack either one of those in our life, if we are not denying ourselves and, and taking up his cross, following him, if we are not taking his yoke upon us, there is no way we will have rest in Christ. In fact, without either of those two things, It is a barrier to our union to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be willing to submit and obey Him in everything in our life. Matthew 10, 38. What's that verse tell us? Exactly. You're not worthy. Now, we looked at these last week. Let's review real quick. The first four, anyway. When, it, when we talk, the Bible says, when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, uh, we found out, number one, it was a yoke we put on ourselves. Uh, number two, to take that yoke on us means to turn our backs on everything that stands against Christ. Number three, uh, it certainly lets us know that yoke, we have now a different master. And again, number four, we talked about it last week. It sounds like a paradox. Now, keep in mind, we're looking for rest. We've been carrying a heavy burden. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. And all of a sudden, we think, wow, how can that be? How can that bring rest? How can that ease our burden? Well, Jesus said his burden is easy and it's, and it's light. Now, here's, here's what you need to understand. Before I was saved, I thought, wow. You know, keeping all the demands of God, and I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible, but I knew God wanted me to be different. 
I thought, man, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be a burden. That's going to bring be grievous unto me to keep the commandments of God. But the Bible said once we're saved, is it a burden to carry God's commandments, to keep his commandments? No. It's a pleasure. We want to. Even when we fail, we still want to keep his commandments. So it's interesting. We think of a yoke putting us under bondage, but the yoke of Christ really introduces a real liberty, the only genuine liberty there is. And folks, I don't, I think you'll agree. I am so glad for the liberty I have in Christ Jesus. My life is so much better. The guilt is gone. I don't carry that burden anymore. And truly his yoke is easy. His burden is light. But the fifth thing this yoke speaks of is a union. Now we talked a little bit about the yoke last week. And uh, whether it's oxen or horses or mules, uh, what's the idea of putting two oxen together? Yeah, exactly. And, and both those things are true. And so those beasts of burden, whether the oxen or the whatever it was, uh, they were joined together to the plow. And so the yoke is a figure of a practical union. We're to take the yoke of Christ upon us. We're to be yoked together with him. Okay? It's a union. Second Corinthians six fourteen. Okay, thank you, Phyllis. But the command is not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then Paul asked two questions. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? And what communion does light with darkness? What's the answer? None. They simply can't work together. Now, again, I mentioned this last week. I've never plowed with the yoke of oxen. Uh, my dad, I asked him this past week about my grandparents, and uh, sometimes they would use a pair of mules. They didn't call them a yoke of mules. Uh, but uh, I think the mules must have been free will Baptist. A, a lot of them wanted to go their own way. And, and the problem is, and, and again, my dad didn't say a whole lot about it, but could you imagine, what, no matter whether it was oxen or mules or horses, if they're going to work together, does it, I mean, what good, what happens if one decides to go their own way? Yeah, nothing happened, nothing at all, okay? There's got to be that union. And so, again, when it speaks about this yoke, taking uh, the yoke of Christ upon it, it is a, uh, it results in a very close communion uh, with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Jesus said, when you come to me to find that rest, he says to us, come to that rest, and when you do, enter into a practical union with him so that we might enjoy fellowship together. What a promise we have from God. John talked about it. I don't have the verse on our notes tonight. It just came to my mind. 
but about fellowship. And he said, truly, our fellowship with each other, but also with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where real fellowship is. Genesis 5, verse 24. What does that mean? Okay. Say it again. Okay. What's it mean to walk with God? What's it mean to walk with God? Absolutely. That implies a union. Okay. And Enoch had that fellowship with God. And what a remarkable union that was. He walked with God. He enjoyed fellowship with God. Amos in chapter 3, verse 3, asks a question. Look at, look at that if you would. What's the answer? No. They simply cannot walk together. They have to be joined together uh, with a goal and uh, of unity and purpose. And if we're going to walk with Christ and be yoked with Him, our purpose is to glorify God in everything that we do. So it's interesting. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. During the years when I had my own business, and... um, not that I had a lot of employees, but I had different employees through the years. And my mindset was, and I told each one of them, whoever they might have been, I will never ask you to do something that I have not done. That I have not done. So my question is, does Jesus ask us to do something he's not done? No. In fact, he's not asking us to wear something he has not worn. Now, don't miss the magnificence of this. Now, remember, who is Jesus? God. Amen. He is God. What kind of power does he have? All power. And we could, the list can go on and on and on. And... If he is going to be yoked, if he is going to be submissive, would you agree? If that's going to happen, he would have to agree to it. Sure. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 8. Thank you, Dan. Now remember, Christ is God. He is equal with God. And the Bible says he made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. Now, you know... uh, 
we meet people in the world who think they're somebody, right? And they would tell us they're above certain things. Exactly. And, and here's Christ, the one who was equal with God. And the Bible says he made himself of no reputation. In fact, uh, Dan, you read, he didn't think it was robbery to, to be equal with God. And it literally means he didn't grasp hold of that. He wasn't, you know, he, he didn't say, I've got to hold on to that. He was willing to let that go. Okay, I mean, to, to become no reputation. But it's interesting. So here we have Christ, the Lord of glory, the Bible talks about. And he took upon him the form of a servant. He was willing to do that. Galatians 4.4. 4. Romans 15.3, then we'll make some comments. Thank you, Dan. Now think about this for a moment. And we've studied enough to know, I hope you know by now, that when Christ came into our world, when he was born in that manger, it was literally God becoming human. Would you agree? God made flesh. Now, first of all, again, a rhetorical question, I suppose, or an easy question. What can God do? Anything he wants. And could he have sent Christ into the world any way he wanted to? Yes. And yet, the Bible says the very Son of God, God determined and chose he would be made of a woman under the law. And in Romans, Paul reminds us that Christ didn't even try to please himself. He took on our reproaches. So he's not asking us to do something he didn't do. John 6, verse 38, look what Jesus said. John 6, 38. What's he saying there? Was he worried about his own will? No. Yeah, amen. Now I realize, and again, uh, I was listening to somebody this past week, and and this person said, I think it was Johnny Erickson Tata, she said, I don't want a God I can fully comprehend. I want a God bigger than that, and I do too. And we know that Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal. All three are God. Not three gods, one God. And Jesus, I didn't come down to do my will. I came down to do the will of my Father, the one who sent me. Now, it's interesting. So, Christ was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father. And so, and I, and I look at that verse... And, and I don't see someone who has, when Jesus said that, I don't picture him saying that with a broken spirit. Do you? 
I don't see him saying it with a burden, but with a joy. He came to do the Father's will. And so this yoke was one that he gladly submitted. And, of course, Paul in Philippians said, even to the death of the cross. So, complete subjection to God's will, to the Father's will. And he had a loving obedience to all of his Father's wishes. Now, it's not part of our text tonight, but we all remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden when he asked the Father to remove that cup. But what did Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. So when Jesus tells us for us to take his yoke upon us, he is saying, do what I did. Do as I did and make God's will yours. Make God's will yours. Boy, that's always easy, isn't it? (laughs) We know it's not. Not for us, but that's exactly what Christ is speaking about. An old theologian pointed out allowing God's will to be our will involves at least three things. First of all, he said we have to take on the yoke of his profession. In the Old Testament time, especially as they were traveling through the desert to the promised land, there were 12 tribes and they had marching orders, which tribe would go first as they would leave camp. And each tribe had a flag. And guess what that flag identified? The tribe they belonged to. And if you and I are going to take the yoke of Christ, that means we profess Him as our Savior. We not only put on the Christian uniform, but we also wear the flag of our commander. And it's not a burden. It is a delight. And folks, hear me well. Hear me well. If you are born again, and I believe you are, we have nothing to be ashamed about. We have the best news for the lost world. And we need to wear the banner of Christ, our profession of Christ, proudly. And anyone who's ever tasted the goodness of God and found out how gracious He is, we can never be ashamed of the gospel He proclaims. And those who have tasted Their desire is to tell anyone who is willing to hear about what God has done for us. A couple of examples from the New Testament. One is Andrew. Go to John 1, verse 40 and 41. 
So here we have Andrew. This is Peter's brother. And Andrew learns of Christ before Peter does. And what's the first thing Andrew does? He goes to tell his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. We have found him. Now, by the way, we weren't there, and the Scripture just gives it to us kind of in black and white. But what do you think Andrew's attitude was when he went to tell Peter? Huh? But I think Andrew was excited. I think Andrew was thrilled. We have found the Messiah. Now, you have to remember, any Orthodox Jew, worth their salt, were looking for what? The Messiah. Andrew said, Peter, you won't believe this. We have found the Messiah, the Christ, the Christos. The woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. John 4, 28 and 29. Anybody got that one? Wow. In her conversation with Jesus, she began like a lot of people. She wanted to talk religion, where to worship. Jesus said, it's time to get beyond that. You don't know who you worship, where you worship. And he began to tell her about her life. As far as we know, had she ever met him before? No. And, but what did he know about her? Everything. And she was so excited. After her encounter with Jesus, I remember she went to draw water. She had a water pot with her. She was so excited, she forgot a water pot, and she went to town to tell what? Let me tell you what I found. Let me tell you who I found. She was so excited. And so, child of God, we never, ever should be afraid to show our colors. In fact, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, guess what? I'll be ashamed of you. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we find some good advice. Look what he said, verse 15. Are you in 1 Peter Now, it's interesting, and thank you, Phyllis. Uh, Peter says, we have to sanctify God, the Lord God in our hearts. That means to set him aside in our hearts. 
But he also goes on to make sure we understand that any time anybody asks why you have the hope you have, Peter said, be ready to give an answer. My question is, how do you do that? How do you get ready? Okay, that's certainly a a vital part of it. But I think there's even something even more basic than that, and we need to have that as well. I want to tell you something, folks. I don't care who you are. If you are born again, you have a testimony. Isn't that true? Now, let me kind of ask a couple of questions to help, help us make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul, for example. Did he have a testimony? Yeah. And this guy was on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and God knocked him off his horse, literally. What a testimony. And so I would ask tonight, how many of you were riding a horse when you got saved? Uh-huh. So you couldn't have been knocked off of it. And our problem is, because I use kind of a, I think, a special testimony there. Well, my testimony is not like the Apostle Paul's. Or my testimony is not like this, hers, or his. doesn't matter. People want to know what God has done for you. You have a testimony. Rehearse your testimony. And that's important. But, Phyllis, I want to add what you said. It's also important to, under, to study God's Word so you can better understand later on what happened to you when you got saved. And you can back up what happened to you, your testimony, by using the Word of God. Oh, yeah. He has to be in our heart. Otherwise, it, it simply will not work. But we've got to be ready... To give that answer when they ask. So my question is, when we give it, should we be be arrogant and proud about it? Yeah, that's what Peter said as well. Do it in meekness and fear. Now, by the way, most of us have had times in our lives since we've been saved. We were less than ready to give our testimony. There were times in our life that we missed opportunities because we wouldn't share. And I want to challenge all of us, folks. Let's don't get caught in that position. Because the world needs to hear what Christ has done for us. But they also need to see the difference Jesus has made in our lives. Now we know that the night before the crucifixion, all the disciples fled and the narrative for the most part spent a lot of time on Peter. And Peter that night was following Jesus afar off. And so three times he does what? He denies him. 
So keep close to Christ. Keep him in your hearts. Sanctify him in your hearts. And don't follow him afar off. So we, to obtain his will, it involves the yoke of our profession. We are children of God. The second important part of having the will of God in our lives is the yoke of his precepts. Psalm 19, verse 8. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Pam and I have been married for a few years now, and and there are times I will she'll I'll say something. She says, Is that right? And I say to her, If I say something, you know it's right. That's the same response she gives me. But the fact of the matter, not everything I say is right. I know you're shocked. Sorry, Alvin, I didn't mean to burst your bubble there. You've been gone too long, brother. (laughs) But, you know, that's the fact. But the psalmist said, God's statutes are right. His commandments are pure. They can rejoice our hearts. They can enlighten our eyes. So one thing for sure, if God says it, is it right? Yes, it is right. Right. And what God said, without a doubt, can rejoice our heart. And it can enlighten our eyes. That's the word of God. Now, we know that to be true. And we stand on that truth. But let's be honest, there are times in our lives when some of the commands that God gives us Stand in direct opposition to our will. Now again, if God makes a promise, what can we count on? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And in those times where, Lord, that's against my will. (laughs) And we know we have the promise of victory. If we depend on him and yet giving ourselves over to his command, a lot of times will involve a struggle in our lives. And yet we know in the back of our mind, it's the best thing to do. And yet we struggle. And when those things come about. those commands that stand against our will. We have to depend on the power of God working in us if we're going to overcome them. But also we have to understand and be acutely aware of our own weakness. Think about this for a moment. We know that God is good. Where's Wayne at tonight? 
he would have said what? All the time. Thank you. We know we can depend upon him. And yet we struggle. But then we have to ask ourselves, how many gods are there, genuine gods? One. And I've got to remind myself, I am not him. And for whatever reason, we've all been guilty of this. We have tried to define God in a way that fits in our box. God, if you are God, you would do this. Don't say you haven't done it because I have too. We preached about the leper, Naaman, a few weeks ago on Sunday night. Elisha wouldn't even come out to talk to him. It says, go dunk in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman said, I thought surely he'd come out and at least wave his hand over my leprosy. Now, this was a pagan. Yet how many times have you and I as Christians thought, God, I thought you would sure do it this way. When's the last time God asked your advice? And you know he never will, nor mine. And so we have to be aware of how weak we are. And we have to rest in the sure promises of God, even when they stand in opposition to what we might want. We don't have the verses before tonight in our notes. But in Romans 4, Paul uses Abraham to illustrate the fact that faith without any works brings righteousness. And Paul reminds us of what happened back in Genesis. When God told Abraham and his wife, who were both fast childbearing, you're going to have a son, the Bible says Abraham believed God. And God counted it for righteousness. He put that on Abraham's account. That's how you declare righteous. Some 17 or so years after Isaac is born, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son. Your only son, Isaac. Not Ishmael, Isaac. And I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah. 
And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. If you're Abraham, what's your first thought? You what? Yeah, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Are you talking to me? Are you talking about Isaac? The promised seed? What do you mean? Is it fair to say, number one, it was a command. God said, Abraham, go do this. Would you agree that that command certainly stood in opposition to Abraham's will? Sure it did. Now, we all know the story because we've read it. Did Abraham read it? No. He lived it. And so we have to know it had to be a struggle. That three-day journey. I can't imagine and I don't, we're not told precisely the amount of time when the command came when Abraham left. But I think it was a struggle every step of the way. And so even for Abraham, the one who believed God, the one who's called the father of faith, it certainly had to be a trial of his sincerity and obedience. But the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight to that. And I don't know when Abraham realized this. We're not told. And even though this stood in opposition to his will, he followed the command. And the writer of Hebrews gives some insight when it tells us that Abraham came to a point in his life He was convinced that if he did take Isaac's life, God would raise him up again. Say it again. Yes. He did have that advantage. But guess what we had the advantage of? Knowing God's promises. Lord, I know what you said, but. Lord, I know you don't need my help, but. We preached about that three-letter word a couple years ago. It always gets you in trouble. And I want to tell you, folks. Anyone who places their faith in Christ. Sooner or later. We'll meet with some call of duty that goes against the dictates of our own hearts. The yoke of his precepts. Now let me interject something here. This may shock you. 
There's a lot of foolish preaching going on in our world today. And you better write it down, folks. If God didn't promise it to you, don't play with it. Don't be a fool. But when God's precepts are clear, don't be afraid to follow. The yoke of our, his profession, he's our Savior. The yoke of his, his precepts, his commands are good and they're true. And the third one I kind of changed a little bit. But I think it's important to understand the yoke of his favor. And I realize that sounds like a paradox. But would you agree as a Christian, one of the benefits we have is God's favor on our life? Amen. And the fact that we enjoy the favor of God on our lives, one thing you can count on, we will be out of favor with those who hate him. I tell you over and over again, the world does not love us. At best, they think we're about three bricks short of a load. They think that our load is shifted on a bad curve, but they don't like us. John 15, verses 18 and 19. For us to suppose that living holy lives and living circumspectly, obedient to God, to think we can avoid that, we're fooling ourselves. I was watching a YouTube clip just one day this week, so it must have been yesterday or Monday. Didn't recognize the fellow, but he must have been very well known in the sports world. And uh, he was being interviewed about his success. And the interview was going quite well. And he shared in so many words, he wouldn't know where he would be without his faith. And how many know people talk about faith all the time? And he shared some of the things that happened in his life. And he said, the great news is, anybody can be victorious if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not lying. All of a sudden, the interview said, and the screen went blank, so we've lost transmission. No doubt. You know why? 
They don't want to hear that. You can talk about faith all you want. You can talk about God all you want. But if you, and this, and this fellow went on to say, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ because he's the only way to heaven. The screen goes blank. But then goes blank. It had them fuzzy things on it. Is that a technical term? I don't know. But they lost. And the newscatcher lied through her teeth. Oh, we just lost transmission. Folks, if you have the favor of God in your life, the world won't like you. They won't like you. 2 Timothy 3.12. Would you read that one more time, Dan? Now, wait a minute. I was watching this preacher on TV some time ago, and he said once you get saved, if you obey God, everything will be okay. If you're living for God, you'll have everything you want. It'll go well for you. But is that what the Bible says, Dan? Nope. If we live godly, make note of the word godly, in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. Now, it's interesting. The key word there is godly. There are a lot of so-called Christians, and I'm not their judge. But they're not going to suffer persecution because they're not going to live godly. Some years ago, I was doing business at a place that sold lumber. And uh, I had been doing business for years. In fact, uh, at least one or two of the employees had come to visit our church through the years before I became pastor. And this was after I became pastor. And I went in there. And the fellow that waited on me out there where well, they loaded your van for you, he said some, some cuss words I forgot about. I mean, he cussed so bad, he would have, and, sorry, Ralph, but he would have embarrassed a sailor. <laughs> and that's how bad his mouth was. And so a few days later, I went in there, and he said, oh, he said, uh, he was new there at the place, and he said, I found out you're a pastor. And then he started telling me how much he loved Jesus. And I thought, don't, don't tell me. Show me the difference Christ has made in your life. See, Jesus said we don't take a light and put it under a basket. We don't take something in what we have in Christ by compromising the truth. And, and by the way, it's only by being unfaithful. It's only by trying to serve two masters that we could ever escape the reproach of Christ. Now remember, well, let me ask you a question. Was he hated by the world? How much? Say it again. Yeah, to the death. They crucified him. They spit upon his face. So here we have a Savior who was hated by the world. And he says, take my yoke upon you. He calls us into fellowship with his suffering. 
don't have the verse, but Paul would write later on about the power of his resurrection. But in that same phrase, he mentions the fellowship of his suffering, the yoke of his suffering. And that's the part of the yoke that Jesus requires those who would follow him to bear. Hebrews 12, verse 6. Okay, let me give you some advice. I realize that it is difficult at times for us to bear the opposition of the world. But I would rather do that than to face the rod of God's correction. Because if he loves you, guess what he'll do? He'll correct you. So yes, we're born again. The flesh is still in us. We've been preaching on that on Sunday mornings. And our flesh resists with everything it has. Whenever our wills are crossed. And the Spirit of God gradually teaches us to agree and be able to say what Jesus said. John 18, verse 11, look what it says. We have to come to that place in our life. Are we willing to drink the cup God has given to us? Thank you, Lord. Let's stop there for tonight.